some biblical writers follow a line of thought more or less straight, linearly, in one direction, and you can follow the logic step by step. Much of Romans is written that way. Much of Galatians is written that way. Other authors tend to circle back on subjects, and they come back to them and spin around it again, and then they add a couple of extra themes, and then hit another theme, and then come back to the first theme and spin it around it again, and so on and so on. And John writes like that. And the result is that it's difficult to uh, uh, develop an outline of First John that is really entirely satisfying because the thought isn't linear. It circles around and comes back at things again and again and again. So, for example, the test of obedience, John handles at least three times and alludes to it two or three other times. The test of love, he handles it at great length four times, and so on. And each time he adds a few more things, but each time he's, he's cycling back a wee bit. Do you see? Now, in the passage in front of us, 2.26, that is the end of the previous passage, all the way to 3.3, constitutes one of those areas where John brings things together in a kind of transition. He summarizes what he said, he adds a couple of extra things, then he goes on a stage farther to set the stage to come back to the truth test, uh, to the obedience test, rather, in 3.4 and following. Then in 3.11 and following, he comes back to the love test, and then he works out some of the practical implications of that. So what we're going to do, first of all, without developing a detailed sort of sub-outline, we're going to follow the flow of thought, the logic of the things that he introduces from 2.26 to 3.3, first of all, to see how he's picked up the themes that he's already introduced, but then adds a few extra dimensions and begins to set the stage then for the big three tests that he always has in front of him. He has the moral test in 3, 4 and following, then the um, love test in 3, 11 and following, and then he'll come back to the truth test in chapter 4, verses 1 and following, but we'll come back to that one in this evening session. So follow the flow of thought from 26 to 26. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray, that is, the so-called antichrists, the people who are trying to win them over to proto-Gnosticism. As for you, the anointing you received from him, that is, the Holy Spirit who has opened your mind so that you understand these things, this anointing was already introduced in verse 20, the anointing from the Holy One, so that you understand the gospel. The anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. Now, at one level, this is bringing up the fact that these believers have this anointing from the Holy Spirit. It's a review. But now it's saying something a little extra, an extra factor is brought in. It's saying, because you have this anointing, you don't need anybody to teach you. And here, commentators sometimes become slightly apoplectic. After all, what does John think he's doing but teaching them? If John is teaching them, then how can he tell them you don't need anybody to teach you? In fact, doesn't it sound a little bit like you don't need the bad guys to teach you? Just trust me instead. But then how dare he frame it so as to say you don't need anybody to teach you. And in fact, there are some in sort of more 
intense charismatic circles today who are really suspicious of commentators and preachers and so on because they have the Holy Spirit to teach them. They've got an inside track with God. So if you've really got the inside track with God and the Holy Spirit teaches you, then you don't need other people to teach you, do you? You don't need commentators. You don't need preachers. You just have this anointing. Is that what John is on about here? I think that there's a background to this passage from the Old Testament that sheds quite a lot of light on what John means. It's actually bound up with a passage that was read in the previous session, John, uh, Jeremiah rather, 31, 31 to 34. I invite you to turn to that passage, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is one of the famous Old Testament passages on the nature of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. Verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So here is an Old Testament passage promising the dawning of a new covenant when there will no longer be teachers. Yet when you come to the New Testament, there's clearly a role for teachers under the New Covenant. What do you think a pastor is? One of the qualifications of a pastor-elder, according to 1 Timothy 3, is that he's able to teach. What is going on here? I think it helps to understand Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, if you back up two verses, Jeremiah 31 29 and 30. Now, I wish I had time to expound the whole chapter. Then things become clearer yet. But, but back up just a wee bit. Verse 29, Jeremiah 31, 29. In those days, that is the days of the coming prophecy, in those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes... Their own teeth will be set on edge. And then our prophecy, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. In other words, this little proverb about sour grapes and no sour grapes, whatever it means, is clearly casting light on what happens when the new covenant comes. And the promise about the new covenant also casts light backward on what is meant by the sour grapes bit. What's going on here? The point to recognize is that under the terms of the old covenant, there were certain people that had the job, the duty, the responsibility of functioning as kinds of mediatorial teachers. I don't know what else to call them. So the priests, for example, not only had the obligation to offer the sacrifices and keep the temple going and so on, but the priests, as they lived in the scattered villages around Israel, were supposed to teach the people of God, to teach them the law, to teach them saying, know the Lord. This is what you are to do. These are your obligations. These are God's promises. They were to teach the people of God. Then the king, likewise, was not only to reign and serve as the supreme court and the chief executive officer and so on, he was also, in some ways, to teach the people. He was the one who, in executive office, was responsible for maintaining the covenant amongst the people of God. 
This is what you must do. This is how we shall rectify injustice in the land. This is the way we shall maintain purity of corporate worship and so on. So in that sense, he was a teacher of the people too. And then, of course, there were the prophets whom God sent. And they would say, hear the word of the Lord. Now, there were, of course, bad kings. There were, of course, corrupt priests. And there were, of course, false prophets. But ideally, under the structure of the Old Testament, then it was peculiarly the role of prophet, priest, and king to maintain godliness and covenantal fidelity amongst the people of God. They were to teach the people, know the Lord. Do you see? They had this job in a particular restrictive sense. Not everybody could be priest. Not everybody could be king. And if you tried to be a prophet when God hadn't spoken to you, you were a false prophet. So the prophets, priests, and kings had this particular mediatorial role. And because that was the very structure of the Old Testament, therefore, when some of these characters did what was peculiarly wrong, judgment fell on the whole people. The fathers ate sour grapes. The children's teeth were set on edge. So David, for example, in the Old Testament, counts the people of God when he's not supposed to against the specific direction of the Lord, and judgment falls on the entire community. The, the, the kings and the priests and the prophets sometimes led the people astray with false teaching. And although they were the ones that were particularly wicked, because of their mediatorial role in Israel, judgment fell on all the people. All of the people were led astray. Do you, do you, do you see? What does the proverb say? The people are complaining. The fathers eat sour grapes. The children's teeth are set on edge. It's the very structure of the kingdom. It's the very structure of the old covenant. But a time is coming, God says, when no longer will people say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. That is, the covenant will change. It will no longer be a tribal representative system. That's the way the old covenant worked. It was a tribal representative system. And when the fathers ate sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge. Do you see? No, 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 no. A new covenant is coming, God says. Verse 31. A new covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, verse 32, when I took them by the hand. Well, obviously, there'll be some points of continuity, but there'll be some points of discontinuity. It'll be unlike that old covenant in some respects. Of course, the old covenant said, don't commit adultery. The new covenant likewise says, don't commit adultery. The new covenant has some points of continuity, right? But in what ways will it be different? It will not be like the old covenant, God says. In what way will it be different? Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors saying to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Now, in the context, after this little bit about the grapes, it seems to me that what is being abolished is not all teaching, but all mediatorial teaching. That is the teaching of people who have some kind of mediating role between God and his covenant community. The special king, the special priests, the special prophets who, who come along and have some mediating function in revealing God's way to the people and saying, know the Lord, thus says the Lord, this is what the Lord says, this is how to behave. No, there'll be some kind of anointing on the lives of all of God's covenant people such that they will all know me from the least to the greatest. That's what it says. From the least to the greatest. Not just the greatest, the kings and the priests and so on, but they will all know me. And in that sense, you will not need 
a special mediatorial teaching office or the like. So when you come to the New Testament, one of the things that's made very clear is that all of us have equivalently received the Holy Spirit. Now, there is some endowment of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but here there is a kind of endowment under the terms of the New Covenant such that you do not need a mediatorial figure, a mediating figure. So, although there are teachers in the church in the New Testament, after all, what do I think I'm doing here? Nevertheless, I cannot come to you and say, I have a separate, special, well-defined office. I am the teacher of Israel. You cannot stand up to my authority or compete with it. I come to you and I say, thus says the Lord. No, no, when I say thus says the Lord, I am appealing to the public scriptures which you too can read. And if you can show me where I am in fact getting them wrong, you have as much right to speak as I do. In the New Testament, there are teachers in the church, but, but worked into a body metaphor in which not everybody is an eyeball, not everybody is an ear, not everybody is a stomach, not everybody is a hind tooth. No, no, there are different roles. You, you see, and what's my role as a teacher? I'm like a stomach. I take a lot of nourishment in and I distribute it to the rest of the body. And I've just destroyed all my dignity. From henceforth, you will think of me as nothing more than a rather ugly stomach. And, 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 and that means that I'm not a mediating voice anymore. Do you, do you see? Because we've all received this anointing of the Spirit of God. We all have this illumination from within. We all have this gift from God, the Holy One, who, who enables us to see and understand and believe the gospel. And then along come the Gnostics. The Gnostics come along and say, uh, 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 we have gnosis. We have special knowledge. And the only people who are qualified to teach you this special inside track knowledge that really enables you to know God is us, the Gnostics. We have gnosis. And if you don't see it, then you're just an animal. Now, over against all of that, John says that's not the way the church works. The church works recognizing that all of us have this anointing. Hence, back in 2.20, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. So if somebody comes with a special inside track insight into things to make you part of a new inner ring syndrome because you don't have enough endowment of the Spirit yet, then John comes back and says, no, uh that's not the nature of the new covenant. The nature of the new covenant is all of us have this anointing from God. All of us have been taught of God. It's part of what is bound up with conversion. That does not mean that there is not more to learn from Scripture, and God may well then give teachers in the church, pastor teachers, who have been around a little longer, who have studied the Scriptures a bit more. It is a God-given office in the church, but not in some mediatorial way. That's why in the New Testament there's only one mediator between God and man, namely Christ Jesus. Do you see? There's only one supreme priest now, Christ Jesus. There's only one king now, Jesus himself. We don't have the right to take on those offices under the terms of the New Covenant anymore. We're just members of the body. And in that sense, it really is very important to recognize that in principle, you have access to all the truth that I have access to. You have access to all the biblical knowledge that I have access to. You have access to all the experience of God that I have access to. 
I don't stand in some special, well-defined, mediatorial office. That series of mediatorial offices has been taken over by Christ himself. One king, one priest, one supreme prophet. Now, in another sense, the New Testament can speak of all Christians being priests. In that sense, we're all mediators between God and the gospel on the one hand and a lost and damned world on the other hand. But there is no special class in the church that is priest. And in one sense, we're all kings. That is, we're all royal, sons of the living God. But there's no one special class in the church that constitutes the king of Israel anymore. Do do, do, do you see? And in that sense, we're all prophets. Just reread Acts chapter 2 with the endowment of the Spirit. But that means there's no special class in the church that has some kind of thus says the Lord mediatorial authority over others in the church that the others in principle cannot have access to. So that's what John says here. He's trying to get rid of this inner ring syndrome that is bound up with being a Gnostic. If you're, you're on the inside track, if you agree with me and my special revelation that I can impart to you, and that, that brings you into my circle. That sort of thing may not be duplicated today exactly, but there are all kinds of inner rings in the church today, all kinds of them. And when they depend on claims to some special insight or endowment, then it really is important to hear the word of God. As for you... The anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. That is, in this mediating sort of way. You have the same anointing that all Christians have. As his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught, you remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, remain in him, persevere to the end. Unlike those people that we've just talked about, the antichrists, who fall away and don't persevere. No, continue all the way to the end, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now he's introduced not only the test itself, that is, If he is righteous, we want to be righteous as he is righteous. Let's not play around and start making excuses for our sin. But this stance in us is the fruit of new birth. Now, he has not used new birth language so far. He has used anointing language, the gift of God, atonement language, but he's not used new birth language. Now he starts playing on this new birth. As he cycles around, he adds a new element. That's the new element here. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Children of God, that is, by the new birth. The new birth makes us children of God. This is a great theme in John's Gospel. After all, read Nicodemus in John 3. That is what we are. We are children of God already by the new birth. That's bound up with this anointing that has come to us by the Holy Spirit. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. That's harking back to John's gospel too. Reread John 15. If the world hated me, don't be surprised if it hates you. If the world accepts me, then of course it'll accept you. And therefore you should not expect great popularity in this world. You you see, for a while, Northern Ireland lived in a context, no doubt divided between Protestants and Catholics, but nevertheless in a context where there was a lot of inherited Christian exposure so that you could hold your hand up and claim to be a Christian, and the world, by and large, would not hate you for that fact. They might not like your party label, but nevertheless, um, there was enough inherited Christianity around. 
But where there's not that sort of broad culture-wide inherited culture Christianity anymore, then to stand up and be a Christian and be countercultural means that the world won't like you any more than it likes Jesus. So don't be surprised if the world hates you. If it hates Jesus, it's bound to hate those who follow Jesus. Jesus makes exclusive statements. The world doesn't like exclusive statements. So they'll take out their animus on those who make exclusive statements, whether Jesus or Jesus' followers. So the fact that some divide and break away and don't want anything to do with us, that shouldn't surprise us at all. We're children of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. We are that already. But what we will be, that is, at the consummation when Christ returns, has not yet been made known. Not, not fully. What is it like to have a resurrection body? What is it like to be sinlessly perfect? What would it be like to have no consciousness of sin in our lives at all? In thought or word or deed or imagination? It's depicted in Scripture, but it's not made fully known to us. We know that it's coming. We know that we're children of God already. We know that's the direction we're heading, and we persevere toward it, but it's not here yet. We live in this tension between what God has already done and what he has not yet done. But we do know that when Christ appears, verse three, verse 2, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. In other words, if you really do long for Jesus' return, you want to minimize the culture shock that will take place at the transformation. If you know that ultimately you are going to be sinlessly perfect, you want to fight against sin now to be as non-sinful as perfect as it's possible for pardoned sinners to be this side of the consummation. That was a very common Puritan prayer. Make me as holy as pardoned sinners can be this side of perfect holiness. That is, they took sin seriously. And because their goal was Christ and his return, and our full knowledge that one day we shall be like him without any stain of sin whatsoever. Therefore, our commitment now is to press on towards holiness now. For one reason or another, we speak a lot in the church of how the gospel gives us orientation to a worldview or to how to bring up a Christian family in an appropriately ordered fashion to... uh, maintaining the right goals and eschewing idols and so on. All of that is, is, is right and, and good. I, I don't want to gainsay any of it. But what we don't hear much of in the Western church at the moment, not much, is how practically to become more holy. One does not hear in the Western church, by and large, a passion for sanctification. And I suspect that's tied to the fact that we don't have, by and large, a passion for the Lord's return. 
Oh, I know, when you have a passion for the Lord's return, it can break down into endless squabbling about whether you're pre-mill or post-mill or whatever kind of mill you are. I know that. We can turn any doctrine into a near abomination by a little bit of squabbling. But now what we have done is avoided all such discussions almost entirely. So we have not bred into our thinking an eagerness for Christ coming back. Oh, I'd like Christ to come back, but not until I've been married for five years. Oh, I'd like Christ to come back, but not until I've seen my children grow up and get married. I'd like Christ to come back, but not until I've seen my grandchildren. I'd like Christ to come back, but not until I become president of my company. And so on and so on. Uh, All of which things may be reasonable goals. They're they're, they're good things. It's wonderful in the Bible to have grandchildren. And yet at the same time, there is in the Bible such an overwhelmingly more important thing. Namely, the consummation of the ages, the return of Christ, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, where there's no more sin or sorrow or death or pain or suffering of any kind, and where there is a perfection of holiness and praise and transparent, unaffected love. And God is the center of all things. That if we love holiness... We want to be sanctified now in anticipation of the perfection of sanctification yet to come. So we read, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So having set the stage then for how important righteousness is, because we have this anointing in the new birth that makes us children of God, having set the stage by running around these themes again, he now comes back then to the cash payout. That means, therefore, that right now we will want to be righteous. We will have to pass this moral test, this this righteousness test, verses 4 to 10. And then following that, the love test, then following that, the truth test. That's the flow of the argument. So now we come to the triple tests, and we'll look at the first two. First, the moral test. Obedience, purity, righteousness, Verses 4 and following. Now, before we plunge in, it's worth pausing for a moment to recognize that one of the most intriguing accusations hurled at Christians by contemporary critics is the charge of ethical hypocrisy. The press are overjoyed when they find a minister of the gospel shacked up with somebody. Because then it's possible to look down your long, self-righteous nose at those miserable, two-faced, hypocritical Christians. But why should we think that just because you're a Christian, you shouldn't be shacked up with anybody? In other words, that assumes that there is a connection between religion, in this case the Christian religion, and ethical conduct. But in the ancient pagan world, there was no such connection. In the ancient pagan world, you could worship all kinds of deities and it had no bearing on your ethical conduct. The assumption that there should be some sort of bearing between your religious belief and moral integrity is, in fact, a Judeo-Christian assumption. So the irony is that when the press laugh at us for our inconsistency and hypocrisy, they are actually mutely testifying to some sort of triumph of Judeo-Christian belief in Western culture that actually has established in Western thought this assumption that there ought to be a connection between your religious claims and your ethical style. 
Do you see? That is an Old Testament way of looking at things. It is a New Testament way of looking at things. Hence, the Old Testament. What does God require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Or Paul, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And on and on and on and on. In other words, sin keeps you out, and as a result, Christians want to overcome sin. Literature in the last few centuries has often focused on stories like Elmer Gantry, uh, of, of uh, religious leaders who are, hypocrite, who are hypocrites, and they're held up to public scandal. <coughs> or read the Barchester series and so on, Trollope. No, no. You've got to eventually face the reality of sin and fight it if you are going to be a Christian at all. So then what is sin? If someone comes along and says, all right, all right, I see this in principle, but what is sin? John has an instant definition at hand. He says, verse 4, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, there are lots of other descriptions of sin in Scripture. Romans 14, whatever is not of faith is sin. James 4.17, knowing the right thing to do and not doing it is sin. Those we call sins of omission. 1 John 5.17, later in this book, all unrighteousness is sin. But here, sin, we're told, is law-breaking. Now, C.H. Dodd, of Limerick fame, calls this definition of sin one of the shallowest in all of Holy Scripture. So he mocks it a wee bit in his commentary on 1 John. But I think, actually, it's one of the most profound. Because it depends on who gives the law. If this is the law of God, then to fly in the face of God's law is to fly in the face of God. To do that which God has prohibited or to fail to do that which God has commanded is precisely to fly in the face of the living God. All unrighteousness is sin, but all real unrighteousness is law-breaking in this absolute sense. And in fact, that's what makes sin, sin. That is, it is offense before God. I've mentioned this elsewhere, so forgive me if you've heard it before. But it's, it's worth understanding. Remember how uh, David, uh, sadly, sins by seducing his neighbor, Bathsheba. And then when she gets pregnant, she lets him know her husband is away at the front fighting one of David's regional wars. David knows he could get found out because her husband's not there. So he arranges through the military command structure to have her husband sent home for a visit, ostensibly to carry a message to the king. And he expects Uzziah, this husband, to go and then sleep with his wife. But he is so much bound up in his loyalties with his mates at the front that he thinks it would be sort of letting down the side to enjoy the pleasure of home life while they're facing skirmishes. So he doesn't even tell her he's home. He, he sleeps in the king's courtyard, prepared to go back the next day. And David knows that he's been snookered. 
So he sends a message back at the hand of Uzziah, telling his commanders at the front to arrange a skirmish where everybody in the platoon has a special code, some sort of signal of some sort or another, to fall back, except Uzziah himself is not to be given the code. The inevitable happens. Uzziah doesn't know that when he's brought this message back to the front, he's carrying his own death warrant with him. But this is what happens. Everybody in the platoon is given a signal. They all fall back. He is left at the sharp end, and he's killed. So now David has been responsible for seduction, adultery, and murder. And he thinks he's got away with it. Then he's confronted by Nathan the prophet. And eventually, David finds himself in deep remorse, deep confession, deep repentance over these series of sins. Eventually, because of it, he writes Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, amongst the many really heartbreaking things that he says, is this, Psalm 51.4, Against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. There's part of you, when you read that, that wants to say, David, come off it. You're kidding yourself. Against God only you have sinned? Didn't you sin against Bathsheba? You seduced her. You certainly sinned against her husband. You had him killed. You sinned against the military high command. You corrupted them. You sinned against your family. You betrayed them. You sinned against the nation because you're the chief magistrate, the chief officer for, for justice. You, you, you've, you've betrayed them. You're supposed to be upholding integrity, and, and you've compromised. In fact, it's difficult to think of anybody you haven't sinned against. And you have the cheek to say, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight? And yet at the deepest level, David has it exactly right. What makes sin so sinful is that it's defiance of God. So often when we think of our sins, we think at the horizontal level of people we've hurt. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night in the halfway period between wake and sleep and you remember some ugly scene in your life where you said something so stupid, so embarrassing, you did something so awful and you squirm and you wish you could run the clock back and undo it and, and, and you can't, of course. The, the, the moving hand having writ moves on, the poet says. You, you can't undo it but you, you squirm as you recall it. Or, or am I the only one that's had experiences like that? We all have experiences like that. The, the shameful thing about them is that what we're ashamed of is almost always purely at the horizontal level. We're ashamed because we've lost face in front of our friends. We've said something stupid that made them think less of us. We're embarrassed by what we've done in front of our friends. How often do we wake up and squirm at night because we've let God down? But David understands that. Against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He's not denying that he's hurt a lot of other people. But what makes sin so grievous, what makes it so awful, is it's defying God. God is the one supremely offended when we sin because we've broken what he says. We've broken God's law. That's what makes this definition of sin so profound. If you cheat on your income tax, the most, impor- the mo- the most offended party is God. You nurture bitterness in your heart, the most offended party is God. You start having... Uh, licentious affairs, the most offended party is God. You start feeding hate, the most offended party is God. You've broken his law. You haven't loved him with heart and soul and mind and strength, which is the first commandment. 
Do, do, do you see? John has got to the heart of the issue in a profound definition. Sin is lawlessness, where it's understood that God is the one who gives the law. So then, having provided the definition, this most profound definition, giving a certain kind of ultimacy to sin, then in verses 4 to 10, he shows how this test works. And he does it on two points. Number one, the purpose of Christ's coming is contradicted by sin. What did Jesus come to do? He came to save us from our sin. So if instead we keep on sinning, then we're contradicting the very purpose of his coming. You know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. The logic is transparent. The language is a bit shocking because we know that we do continue to sin. But nevertheless, let the language stand there in all of its stark power. Every time we sin, we're contradicting the purpose of his coming. He came to deal with sin. Then, second, paternity to God or to the devil is marked out by observable righteousness or observable sin. That is, who your real daddy is, God is your father, or the devil is your father, is marked out by your behavior. Verses 7 and following. Now, the reason this strikes us as a bit strange is because we don't think of sonship the way they thought of sonship in the first century. All of this stuff you'll find in the book that was mentioned yesterday, Jesus, the Son of God. When we think of sonship, we think of DNA and the latest CSI (laughs) crime series where who's the real father and who's the real son is established to parts per billion of probability um, by, by, by DNA markers. But in the ancient world, sonship had a different set of associations. In the ancient world, if you were a boy and your father was a farmer, the chances were overwhelming that you became a farmer. If your father was a baker, the chances were overwhelming you became a baker. father was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. The girls became what their mothers were. The boys became what their fathers were. That's the way it was. And so Jesus himself is constantly referred to in the Gospels as the carpenter's son, and then once in Mark 6 as the carpenter, presumably is so-called father has died and he's taken over the family business before he's, he's started his public ministry. Do you, do you see, that, that identifies him. Moreover, if your father was a <clears throat> farmer, he doesn't send you away to agricultural college. There were no such things in the first century so that you could come back and help him on the farm or to business school so you could run the business side. No, the way you learned to become a farmer was at your father's hand. The father showed you all of his business when to plant, how to irrigate, uh, when to harvest, what the weather patterns are like, how to put in fence posts, and so on, so on. He taught you the business. And thus the father-son relationship was bound up with, with, with likeness. Oh, who's that? Oh, that's the farmer's son. Do, 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 do you, you see, you're identified by your behavior. And out of this, then, come a lot of biblical metaphors. Son of Belial. Belial means worthlessness. Somebody's called son of worthlessness. That's not actually an insult on your daddy. It's saying you're so disgustingly worthless that you must belong to the worthless family. 
Do you see? Similarly in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The idea is that God is the supreme peacemaker. So that if you make peace, you're acting like God. And along that axis, you're showing yourself to belong to the God family. Along that axis, at least. Who are the true sons of Abraham? Those who have Abraham's genes? Well, Paul recognizes that some people have Abraham's genes and some people don't. He calls them sons of Abraham according to the flesh. But the real sons of Abraham act like Abraham. That is, they share Abraham's faith. So behavior is what identifies you as belonging to this party or that party. Do do, do you see? So also here, what identifies you as sons of God versus sons of the devil? Behavior. 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 So verse 7, dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Do, Do you see? It's behavior that marks you out, marks out your paternity, whether you belong to this family or to that family. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God, there's this new birth language again, will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. And thus he's made a transition to the love test. So the general thought here is pretty clear. But the language is so stark that it causes quite a lot of us problems, doesn't it? In fact... Those of you who have studied 1 John or read a commentary on 1 John will know that there's another layer of challenge here. Verse 9 literally reads, No one who is born of God sins. Almost all of our translations have instead, will continue to sin. (coughs) Then it says, They cannot go on sinning, the NIV, or they cannot practice sin, the ESV. In fact, the Greek has, they cannot sin. But it's the present tense in Greek, which some try to say, yeah, but the present tense in Greek suggests continuity and the practice of something. So maybe they can sin, but they can't can't go on practicing sin. Well, there's something to that in Greek, but it, it doesn't quite get at the point. This language is startling. They cannot... Sin, okay, if you like. They cannot go on sinning because they've got the new birth in them. But most of us in this room claim we've had the new birth, and yet do we go on sinning? How do do we understand this? Well, there are a lot of different elements in it. A lot of different elements in it. John himself has already established that the ultimate release from sin comes at the consummation. We're looking forward to the time when we will be perfect. Anyone who has this hope of Christ's return purifies himself because, because one day we will be like him. John acknowledges that we're not there yet. But I think that there's another element in it all. Many moons ago, I was in year seven at school, and my school teacher was a man called Mr. Cooper. Mr. Cooper was a World War II vet in the Canadian Army. He had been wounded. And he uh, hobbled around the classroom and wished that the classroom were still a parade square. So he tried to teach these year seven boys as if they were troops to be yelled at 
and told off and uh, with the expectation of instant obedience, which he did not get. I remember on one occasion when the noise level in the classroom was getting a little, a little over the top, uh, I looked up and saw him, um, saw him rising to his feet and uh, lifting up the lip of the desk and then slamming it down with a big bang on the linoleum floor. We all looked up startled, and he said, that's only one-tenth of my strength. <laughs> I mean, it was not really a very convincing way of proceeding. One of the things that he hated above all else was gum chewing. And if he caught you chewing gum, he would pick up the dustbin by his desk and he would go down to the offending victim, hold it under the victim's nose, stare at him in the face and recite. A gum-chewing boy and a cud-chewing cow look so much alike, yet different somehow. What is the difference? <laughs> ah, I see it now. Tis the thoughtful look in the face of the cow. Spit! <laughs> now, you, you may ask yourself why I remember that so vividly. <laughs> now, what was Mr. Cooper saying? He was saying, in effect, you cannot chew gum here. But he didn't mean it ontologically. It wouldn't have done, for example, for somebody two rows over to say, uh, ontologically speaking, Mr. Cooper, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. I'm doing it. <laughs> because sometimes when you use cannot, you're not talking at the ontological level. You're talking at the moral demand level. You cannot chew gum here. It's not saying it's physically impossible. Similarly, in the Church of the Living God, I have looked up every instance of cannot in the New Testament. And about a third of the instances aren't talking about what's ontologically possible or impossible. It's talking about moral demand. What the text is saying is, if you're born of God, you must understand you cannot sin. You have the power not to sin. Christians don't sin. This is the Church of the Living God. There is no sinning here. You cannot sin. And it quite misses the point to say, ontologically speaking, Don, you're mistaken. I'm doing it. <laughs> the point is, Christians don't sin here. This is the church of the living God. This is the blood-bought community. This is the born-again community. Christians don't sin. You cannot sin here. This is the church of Christ. You cannot sin. But John has already acknowledged in the first chapter that anybody who goes around saying that he doesn't sin or can't sin or hasn't sinned is a liar and the truth isn't in him. For the painful fact remains that we do sin. And the only solution that John has for us is the one that he's already laid out. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. And he is the propitiation for our sins. But unless you live self-consciously with that tension, you will constantly be trying to soft-pedal sin. On the one hand, for every Christian, on every occasion, every sin is without excuse. And on the other hand, when we sin, our only hope is we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. We go back to the cross again and again until the day comes when we are perfected at the consummation and everyone who has this hope in himself 
purifies himself in anticipation of that day. And indeed, the rest of the chapter, which then goes to the love test, makes the same point with respect to the love test. I don't have time to tease it out, but it's the same argument again. I'm going to close in prayer. But before I do so, perhaps we can take a few moments to think on these things and reflect on how we, in our lives, likewise, must learn to hate sin and combat it. Christians cannot sin here. But God help us, we do. And our only hope is still to return again and again to the cross. Let us pray. As you have forgiven our sins in Christ Jesus, merciful Father, so we pray for such an endowment of your blessed Holy Spirit that we will learn to hate sin and fear it, to love holiness and cleave to it, to confess our sin quickly, knowing that Christ Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to return again and again to the cross, in anticipation of the day when we too will be as sinless as Christ Jesus is, in whose name we pray. Amen.